0: The Bible begins with these words from the book of Genesis: "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." He formed them, and He filled them, creating everything that exists, including human beings. And then the first humans, Adam and Eve, were tempted by the serpent to disbelieve, then disobey, and they sinned against God. But God promised to Eve that one of her children or one of her descendants would eventually crush the serpent and bring God's salvation. She thought that this would happen immediately, but it did not. As Genesis continues, we meet Adam and Eve's son, Seth. He will be the one through whom the promise would be continued, or at least his line would be. Then 10 generations after Seth, we meet Noah And God graciously saves Noah from the judgment of the flood that falls on sinful humanity. Of Noah's three sons, we read that God's blessing is on Shem. And then 10 generations after Shem, Moses, the writer, the author of the book of Genesis, introduces us to Abram. And that's my 60-second summary of Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, For a longer version, you can read it yourself, or you can listen to our sermons from, what, January through June? In our study of the book of Genesis, our attention is going to be focused on Abram, later called Abraham, for the next 12 chapters, which should take us close to six months. And beyond that, the focus stays on Abraham's family forever. The attention, the story of creation and redemption never leaves the focus on Abraham's family. To transition us from chapter 11 to chapter 12, I'm going to read, uh, starting in chapter 11, verse 27, but our text is in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. So if you have not already, please take your copy of God's Word open very quickly to Genesis chapter 11 as I begin reading. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Terah died in Haran, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said, or had said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed.'" So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and, all, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. As I've considered this passage for our time together, I see three important themes The gracious call of God, the costly obedience of faith, and the delayed fulfillment of promise. We're going to look at these themes in the life of Abram, and then in the life of Jesus, and then finally in our own lives. Let's start with Abram. The gracious call of God in the life of Abram. Who was Abram? Well, he's a man living in a city near ancient Babylon, according to the map at the back of my Bible. It is uh, southeast of Babylon, uh, and they have a reason for putting it there, so I'm going to trust the map in the back of my Bible. I don't know any better. He's living in a city near ancient Babylon. When we meet him, and he's married to a woman named Sarai. Sarai is barren, and they have no children. And now it's really easy to flatten historical figures in the Bible or in other history books and forget that, like us, they changed over time. So who Abram is now is not everything that Abram or Abraham would be. Uh, Just like you aren't who you were and you aren't who you will be, Uh, Lord willing. uh, If you're in Christ, I'm more certain that that means that you will be more like Jesus uh, than you are now and that you are more like Jesus than you used to be. Uh, Abraham, too, will grow in faith. So we can't just take like, oh... Abram is Abraham, uh, who is the father of the faithful, that's true, and be like, so he's just great right now. He's the old righteous man, one of the perpetually faithful. And if we thought that about Abraham and flattened everything that we know about him into this one moment when we first meet him, uh, we would be terribly wrong, because that's not who Abram is when we first meet him, that's who Abram would become by the grace of God. Listen to how God describes who Abram was through Joshua uh, several generations later. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Euphrates River, it's the area of Babylon. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So who is not just Terah, not just uh, Nahor, but who is Abram? He is an idolater. When we first meet godly father Abraham, he's a sinful idol worshiper like everybody else or nearly everyone else in the ancient world whose ancestors had rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel, the last narrative that we have 10 generations prior to this. Apparently, humanity has not changed that much. And that's important for us to understand who Abram is, to understand that the call of God that comes to Abram is the gracious call of God. Abram had done nothing to deserve God's favor or God's attention on his life. God chose Abram in the midst of an idolatrous culture and then called him out from that idolatry. So we see God's grace, undeserved favor, active in choosing Abram and calling Abram to follow him. And God's call of Abram was a very clear command. We see it in verse one. The Lord said or had said to Abram, go, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So go is that first aspect of command, but it's not all that God said. God was gracious in the very fact that he had chosen Abram to be the recipient of his grace, right? Grace to show grace. It's just grace upon grace upon grace. But that's not all that God said. He didn't just say go. That's just verse one. He also graciously attached several promises to the call that he put on Abram's life. Uh, To summarize these, and we'll come back to these because God comes back to these a number of different times, he said this, these promises made to Abram, "Uh, I'm going to give you a people. I will make of you a great nation. And then later he speaks of Abram's offspring. So uh, the promise of people, uh, the promise of a place, go to the land that I will show you and I will give you this land. So I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you a place. Uh, these peas I'm ripping off from somebody else, so I'm not this clever. Uh, also, the promise of protection, or some people would say the presence of God to bring that protection. I will bless you. Who's the I? God himself is the I. Uh, not I-E-Y-E, I, right? I will bless you. I will be with you to bless you, and I will bless those who bless you. And when someone dishonors you because I will be with you, I will curse them, right? So we see God's presence with Abram, and that is continued to, it's like, I will be with you, and I'll be with your descendants. I will be with my people uh, for their protection. And then the last aspect of this promise, all of which is grace, none of which Abram deserved to receive from the Lord, is this idea of a program. Uh, Kind of a weird word to use, but again, I borrowed this from somebody else, and I just like alliteration. So he says this, this is the program. This is, this is what I'm doing. This is the work that I'm accomplishing. You will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You will be blessed with people, with place, and with my protection. Uh, but that's, but you're not the end point of that. And as a matter of fact, not just in your family isn't the exclusive recipient of my blessing. But through you, through your offspring, My blessing will actually go to the whole earth. All the families of the earth will find my blessing through my blessing on you. And those are huge promises. those Those are lavish, gracious promises that we see being unfolded throughout the rest of Scripture and up to this present time. So we see first the graciousness of the call of God in the fact that Abraham's an undeserving sinner. And we see the graciousness of God in that call with these promises that are attached to that call. So God chose an undeserving, sinful man through whom he would bless an undeserving, sinful world. And God's call was gracious, but it was also costly. So we see the gracious call of God, but we also see the costly obedience of faith. There was much for Abram to gain people, place, protection, uh, this program. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't anything for him to lose. God called him to, to go, but not just to go, but to go from. Or if we put in a different word there, we could say leave. It's not just travel, but it's leave where you are to go to somewhere else, right? Go from. Well, where is he to go from? Where where is he to leave? What's to be behind him? His country or his land. Go from your land. The place where he grew up. uh, The home that he had known. uh, Probably the place where he had spent his entire life. Decades of his existence had been in this one place. And God says, you know, put that behind you. Leave there. Leave, go from your kindred or or your family, all his relatives his neighbors, his fellow Chaldeans, all the people that Abram had grown up alongside, uh, worshiping with them, feasting with them, doing business with them, selling to them, buying from them. He's also very likely, I don't see how it could not have included, Sarai's relatives as well. These were the people who had joined in the celebration of the feast at their wedding, and God says, put them behind you, I want you to leave. And most pointedly, God says, leave your father's house. There's familiarity, there's safety, there's security dwelling under this protection of Terah. And really, I'm not going to, he doesn't seem to do that. Like, Terah goes, and they kind of follow and stalls the journey. It's like he half obeys under his father's house, and then his father dies, and then we hear about this promise that was being made. But I think God is saying, right, leave your, that's security, leave that familiarity, leave the inheritance of your father's wealth, don't inherit the family business, put it behind you, go. Leave your land, leave your community, leave your family, leave your culture, leave your security, leave your identity, leave it all behind you. The costly obedience of faith And when I talk about the costly obedience of faith, I'm thinking really of any difficulty that Abram would have faced in obeying God's call. So another difficulty, I think, was his own lack of information. God said, go. Well, Go where? Well, go to the land that I will show you. Oh, okay. Can you imagine how difficult that was? Well, Sarai, I'm the lord of this household. Call me Lord you be righteous. We're packing up and we're leaving. Well, why? Because God told me to. Oh, well, which God? Well, you know, a God that we haven't really been worshiping. That one God that we heard of from our ancestors. Oh, that's nice. Well, where are we going? Well, I don't know that. But he told me that he would show it to me. Okay. But regardless of how that conversation went in the tent that evening, what does Abram do? Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him. The text presents this in very simple terms. Nothing more than an act of simple obedience, motivated by faith in God's call. God said, go, Abram went. Right? That simple commands simple obedience, uh, but that which is simple is not necessarily easy. And I'm saying it's not easy because there's a costly obedience of faith that we see in the life of Abram. Hebrews 11 describes it this way. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And the three more difficulties would come when they arrive in the land. We see later on They get there to the land of Canaan. Now, this is the place. In verse 7, it says this, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. What a great promise, right? Isn't that exciting? To your offspring I will give this land. Grace abounding to Abram. There are three difficulties woven into the midst of this. Big difficulties. The first... The land already belonged to someone else. It says it in the text. They got there. The Canaanites were in the land. It was occupied. It was dwelt. I mean, cities were built or being built. People were there. This is the place. Okay. It's not not what I expected. The second difficulty: Abram had traveled to a land that he himself would never actually settle in. Go to the land that I will show you. Oh, that's my inheritance. This is going to be great. I don't know where it is, but God promised to give it to me. And then he gets there, and then God says, I will give this to your offspring. But do you hear who's not going to get it? Who does not get the land? Abram doesn't get the land. Go to the land. He sets foot in it, and then God clarifies, you're not actually going to get to stay here. That's a difficulty. Right? There's a costly obedience to that faith. His entire life, Abram would live as a stranger in a foreign land. A land that his children or grandchildren would eventually take possession of. And that's the third difficulty. That's the the lemon juice and the paper cut. What offspring? What offspring? To your offspring, I will give this land. They had no children because his wife Sarah was barren. And what a heart wrenching word that is. Hey, consider this Leanne and I were married in 2007 in June. By Christmas of that year, she was not yet pregnant, but she was desperate for a baby. Uh, I knew that because I wore the wrong sweater at a Christmas concert at our church. It was apparently a father like sweater. Uh, And so we're watching this Christmas program, and I'm just in a sweater. It's Michigan. I don't want to be cold. And she gets up and leaves. I don't have permission to tell this story. Uh, But she gets up, and she leaves, like, troubled. And I'm like, what happened? And I go out. I find her. She's crying. She's crying because there was a baby on stage, and I looked like a dad, and she wasn't pregnant. It was just like, oh, dear. (laughs) Right? Six months into marriage, be like, I don't understand what's happening right now. But, and then by May, uh, she was pregnant with Elise. Nine to 10 months into our first year of marriage. But at no point in those first nine to 10 not yet pregnant months of our marriage, did we or anyone else refer to Leanne as barren. There's a difference between not pregnant and barren. Barrenness is not just a condition, it's a conclusion. A couple has tried and tried until they finally realized and admitted the hard truth, the heart-wrenching truth. They will not get pregnant. And that's the situation that Abram and Sarai had resigned themselves to for decades. The man's 75 years old. When we're talking, when he's leaving Haran and hearing from God and this promise. 75 years old. Let's say he got married at 30. 30. That's 45 years of their married life. Like, it's a fact for them that they have and they won't have children. And then God takes them to a land that he now is not actually going to get, that's occupied with other people, and starts talking about children. What children? You haven't given us children. There's a costly obedience to faith, It must have been a difficult promise to accept, but by faith, an act displaying his faith, Abram accepted God's word as true, regardless of the parts that he didn't understand, and Abram obeyed, because that's what faith does. Faith obeys. When faith hears from God, go to an occupied land that I will eventually give to your non-existent offspring. It simply obeys, even without all of its questions answered. There's a cost to that. That's not an easy pill to swallow. And that's often true when it comes to the call of God, even the gracious call of God on our lives. And amazingly, Abram doesn't go grudgingly. He goes worshipfully. He had dedicated himself to this God who had called him in grace and had made these promises that Abram did not deserve. So we see it twice. They first arrive in the land. God clarifies this promise, and he builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then they move on again. That's all Abram ever does, right? And Abram journeyed is basically like the title of his biography. Just wander different places. And in the next place that he arrives, we read in verse 9, or verse, verse 8, they arrive, Bethel and I, and he builds another altar to the Lord and calls on the name of the Lord. So as Abram goes, we continually see him worshiping God. And worship is the, our response, grateful response to the grace of God. So Abram knows that he doesn't deserve these things, that God has made huge promises to him that ought not to be. He trusts God, he worships as he goes. And this is just the beginning of the story. This is just the first, I mean, basically like a a prologue almost, or at least the first chapter of the story of God's grace to Abraham. It's the beginning of God's grace and the beginning of Abram's faith. So we've seen the gracious call of God in the life of Abraham. We've seen the costly obedience of faith, but we also see the delayed fulfillment of promise. And this is both here, but it also kind of continues, right? Throughout, Throughout his journey up to this point, How many things has Abram received of what God promised to him? He's with him. So maybe that one. Other than that, nothing. And not only has he not received anything up to this point, he won't receive it for a really long time. It would be 25 years before Abram's son Isaac would be born. We're not even going to talk about the promise of his birth until like November. There's a delayed fulfillment of the promise of offspring. Then there's the delayed fulfillment of the promise of the land, which Abram would later find out. Not only would he not receive it, Isaac wouldn't receive it, Jacob wouldn't receive it, but God would later tell Abram, hey, guess what? In 400 years, your people are going to come back. Then they'll get the land. 400 years. 2023. Minus 400, 1623, right? No United States of America, right? Barely any colonies. There's a very little was happening here 400 years ago. It's like looking forward that far. That's almost like almost the entire history of our country. Of a waiting period. That's a long time a delayed fulfillment to the promise, yet that promise was fulfilled. promise of offspring took 25 years, but it was fulfilled. The land, 400 plus years to be fulfilled. And what about this other aspect of it? There's the delayed fulfillment of the promise of worldwide blessing, and there's a sense in which that promise actually remains not fully fulfilled to this very moment. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he looks back at this passage when writing to the Galatians. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, Abraham saying, and it quotes this, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So do you hear in that the fulfillment of the promise to Abram? The salvation that is available to sinners around the world, not just Abram's little world, the globe A land that was bigger than they could possibly have conceived of at that time. With more people than they could have conceived of at that time. And you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So uh, salvation available to sinners around the world through faith in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abram back in Genesis 12 around 4,000 years ago. And that isn't completely fulfilled yet. Because the gospel blessing is still advancing across the world, every person from any tribe, tongue, people, or nation who comes to faith in Jesus is an an ongoing expansion of the promise of blessing worldwide that God made to Abram four thousand years ago. You want to talk about the delayed fulfillment of promise, right? Like you you promised me something, and it's tomorrow. I might have a hard time waiting. (laughs) Twenty-five years. Right? I'm pushing 65 at that point? 400 years? 4,000 years? These three themes, though, gracious call of God, the costly obedience of faith, and the delayed fulfillment of promise, they're all seen in this passage in the life of Abram. But it doesn't stop there. We could see these in a number of different passages, but there's always one that you got to go to, which is Jesus. Right? If if Jesus is the one that all of this is being pointed toward, then we're going to see these same things in the life of Jesus, and we do. We see the gracious call of God in the life of Jesus, not grace to Jesus because he didn't deserve something. He deserved everything. But the grace of God and the call of Jesus is seen grace to us. That we did not deserve God to call Jesus to come. He called him or he commissioned him. The Father sent his eternal Son to become human, to live and die for us. That was the call of God on Jesus that was an expansion and an extension of his grace to us. We did not deserve to be treated with such mercy as to have God bear his own wrath toward our sin. And that was the call on Jesus' life. This mission of redemption that Jesus entered into was the Father's will. It was his plan. It was his command to his Son. And God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, said, I delight to do my father's will. I delight to obey my father's command, not just the commands about not murdering and not lying and not committing adultery, but I delight to do my father's will, which is come and live and suffer and die. That was the call, a far more difficult call than ever faced Abram or ever faced us, yet Jesus delighted to do his father's will. But there was also a costly obedience to his faith. The cost of Christ's obedience starts in the very act of his incarnation. This selfless humiliation of God becoming human, like Philippians 2 talks about. To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he was God. He did not count his equality with God, something that he had to grasp or clutch onto or guard at all costs, but he emptied himself. And what did that look like? It looked like the taking the form of a lowly servant. When did he become a servant? When he became a human. That's Paul's definition of that. Taking the form of a servant when he was born in the likeness of men. That's who we are in relationship to God. He is Lord and we are servants. And the Lord of all became a servant when he became like us. Servant of God and a servant of us. And the cost or difficulty of obeying the Father's will is also seen throughout his life. Jesus' life was one of suffering a life of rejection. He was misunderstood and rejected and attacked and betrayed. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus was made or or shown to be perfect through suffering. And then Hebrews 4 reminds us that we don't have a high priest in Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been, do you remember the word? Tempted like we are, yet without sin. So Jesus's life was a life of suffering externally and internally as he wrestled against temptation, never giving in to that enticement to disbelieve and disobey God. And then without any doubt, Jesus paid that unthinkable cost uh, in his incarnation and throughout his life. And of course, the highest cost Jesus paid was by laying down his own life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. There was the physical agony of his death. Uh, There was the, the, frustrating isn't the word, the infuriating fact of the injustice of it. Who wants to be lied about? Who wants to be misrepresented and betrayed, not just by his friends, but false accusations. Nobody nobody wants any of that, right? And Jesus suffered both of those. There was physical agony, and then there was just that, that infuriating misrepresentation of those type of things, the injustice of it, that all of us as humans just cry out against. But neither of those were the most significant agony and suffering that Jesus faced on the cross. Most severely was the wrath of his father, poured out on him as Jesus was made sin for us, made to be sin, even though he had known no sin. There was no greater cost that has ever been paid and no greater suffering ever endured than the the act, the moment of the father forsaking his son who had been made sin. Yet, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured every aspect, physical, emotional, spiritual, right? Can we say theological, like the divine agony of the cross? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. There was a costly obedience of faith lived out in the incarnation and life and death of Jesus. And there was also the delayed fulfillment of promise even for him. I mean, think about the aspect of that life. He knew who he was. He knew that he was the promised king of Israel. He came to his own, his own creation, his own nation, but his own did not receive him. His family didn't receive him right away. Mary treasured the things in her heart and also kind of agreed with her sons that maybe he was going a little bit too far. He enjoyed very little acceptance by his own people. And he even spoke and recognized the fact that his kingdom Looking through that, because at first it'd be like, oh, eventually it's going to be over and i will get to heaven. Like, well, there's that joy, right? Oh, he'll get to be with his father again. Oh, yeah, I mean, that was a good piece to that, but he had already been with his father. Like, if it was just endure and you can come back, then why did he go in the first place? He had already enjoyed that. That's not the joy that I think he... Endured for the sake of. Instead, the joy set before Jesus as he endured the incarnation and suffering of his life and his death on the cross and the Father's wrath coming on him was the prospect of enjoying eternity with his people whom he would redeem by his death. Jesus came and lived and died looking forward to heaven because that is where the permanent physical togetherness, the union that he would have with us, as his people. Right? Jesus was willing to go through all of that so that he could be with you if you are his, he could be with you forever. Are you with him forever right now? Like, Are you enjoying the physical togetherness with Jesus face to face on the new earth? Are you? No, you're not. And he isn't either. Because it hasn't happened yet. So there's a delayed fulfillment of the promise that he would save his people from their sins and return to be with them together. That Jesus is waiting for that, longing for that day, looking forward to the enemies being put under his feet and his people being with him. This is like every groom looking forward to the wedding. Jesus is longing for the time when he can be with us. It's that kind of love and he's waiting for that. So even for Jesus, in a sense, there's that delayed fulfillment of promise. The lives of Abram and Jesus reveal the gracious call of God and the costly obedience of faith and the delayed fulfillment of promise, but what about us? Well, those things are also true for us, beginning when we were unbelievers. You see, like Abram, we all begin our lives as sinners who are guilty before God. Uh, we are all, whether you're old or or young, We are all unworthy, guilty sinners. We deserve punishment for our sins. And I hope that you've embraced the truth that there is nothing worthwhile in you or any of us to cause God to look on us with favor, now or in the future, not when we were born or when we believed or at the end of our lives. There will never be a time now or in eternity when we'll ever be worth anything to God that he didn't do. And we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We still won't deserve to be there. It's always the undeserved, 100% grace of God toward unworthy, guilty sinners. It will always be the refrain, you are worthy, we are not, apart from what you've done for us. We can't move past that. And if you're not in Christ, and you're wrestling with like, well, do I need to be good enough? You'll never be good enough. If you've, been, if you've listened to a misrepresentation of Christianity, that we all think that we're better than you, we're not better than you. And when I do think that I'm better than other people, it's not because I'm in Jesus, it's just because I'm a sinner. And it didn't take becoming a Christian for me to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. That's a sin problem, not a symptom of my Christianity. None of us deserve the grace of God that has been extended to us, but it is available you don't have to be cleaned up first because he's the one who does the cleaning grace is always 100 percent undeserved you bring nothing to god it's been well said that the only thing that you bring to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary i wish i could come up with quotes like that i don't even know who it is but it's not original to peter ambler salvation is all of god and it is all of grace to Abram and to us. But God has called everyone, every sinner on earth, he's called everyone to repent of their sin, to believe the good news of Jesus. And the call to follow him is universal. It is a command that must be obeyed. And if you have trusted in Christ, obeying God's command to turn and believe, receiving his call Even that is evidence of the abundant, saving grace of God in your life. You were blind before he caused you to see. And you were deaf before he caused you to hear. And your sinful heart was as hard and dead as a rock. Until he came and gave you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that would believe. It's of God and it is of grace. And like Abram, Christ's call to unbelievers is to leave. There is a costly obedience of faith. Leave behind the world that you were born into. Leave your unbelieving community, your family, your friends, your mentors, your culture, your security, your identity. Leave it and find a new name and family and place. But leave There's a costly obedience to that faith. And for most people in most countries or cultures across time, that has been very clear. It was clear for the Jews. It was clear for the Romans. It was clear now. It's clear for Muslims and for Buddhists and for Hindus and for atheists. It's clear that they're they're saying no to what they've known and moving into something new. But for those of us who were born into families with believing parents, like I was, they're right there, and it was a blessing not something to receive contrary to the grace of God. But for those of us who were born into families with believing parents, and for you kids who are born into, right, into this church, growing up in this church, there is a relational cost for you not following Jesus, which flips it on its head and helps us to kind of miss the costly obedience of faith. And that's one of the reasons that we want to be really, really careful and patient when it comes to professions of faith, especially in the lives of our children. It's why we don't want to employ a strategy of, it's like, do you want to follow, you want to come to heaven with daddy and mommy? Do you you want to, right, be everybody at church to celebrate what's going on? Well, then just say these words and we'll just dub you a Christian. We want to be careful about those professions because we all have to count the cost, Like, do you recognize what I'm saying? It's like, kids, there's a cost to following Jesus, and you need to be aware of that. The cost is everything. Jesus said to count the cost before following him. There were people following him that he knew weren't really following him, and so he's like, he speaks hard words, push them away. We could only push them away. They only went out from them because they were never really of them. Cuz if they had been of them, they would have continued with them. First John chapter 2, I think it is, talks about that. Jesus says this in Matthew 10 verses 37 to 39. This aspect of leaving. Hear this passage. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? Jesus is not just one good thing among many. He demands to be everything. So that means, my wonderful children, who I love dearly, that if you're following Jesus just because I follow Jesus, you're on the wrong path. And get other kids, it's, like, it's exciting for the prospect. I pray for each of you often, but not enough. But I pray for you that you would all follow Jesus. Pray for Timothy and Allison's baby, that, that they'll follow Jesus. Jackson and Josie's baby, they'll follow Jesus. Like, we are excited about the prospect of that and, and hopeful that God will answer those Prayers. But there must be repentance of faith. And it's not automatic. And there is a cost. That if we all turn, you keep following Jesus. He is the only way, regardless of who changes their mind or who falls away. And that's not the only cost for us as unbelievers. That idea of, of losing relationships because we're following Jesus. Uh, like Christ, Christians are seen and and known as weak and despised and rejected. It's First Corinthians. Paul's like, this is this is just the truth. You guys aren't that impressive. <laughs> Dear Risen King Church, you think you're something, but you're not. Love Paul. <laughs> like, like, what? It's good uh, church growth strategy. I mean, you're not that great. <laughs> kind of bottom of the barrel. I love you. We're all bottom of the barrel. Anyway, we are not chosen by God or known by the world for our strength or our wisdom. There's no guarantee of health or of riches. We follow Christ who took up his cross, it says it, by taking up our own cross. Uh, and if, if you woke up with a headache today, that's not a cross. You don't get a little cross, you bear a cross on your shoulders to go and die. We die like Christ daily. We die with Christ. We die to relationships and reputation and riches and success because there is a costly obedience in Jesus Christ. Of course, there is also much to be gained. It's not just loss. There's also gain, but that gain, once again, there is a delayed fulfillment to that promise. We really need to be clear about this when we're sharing the gospel because Jesus was clear about it. Don't gain the whole world and lose your soul. But that which is worth it at the end, right, is not immediate. There's a delay to the fulfillment of that promise. We are forgiven and we are justified at the moment of faith in Christ, but we wait to hear those verdicts proclaimed in person at the future judgment, right? So there's even a waiting and standing before God to hear that pronounced over us. It's true. It's a fact, but we wait to hear it pronounced. So there's a future salvation. We are saved and we're awaiting salvation. Both of those are spoken of in Scripture. And then we read about the fact of those those sufferings in our lives, sufferings that Jesus endured, sufferings that we endure, things that that we lose, all of those losses, that they're all leading to a future glory. That which will be revealed in us. A glory and an honor that, that outweighs all of what we have lost. But that glory is still future. We don't see it now. We don't have it right now. The fulfillment is delayed. And then we recognize that we are strangers here and now. Just like Abram. On a wandering through life. Strangers in a foreign land. But there and then. Not on this day, but on that day. We will be home with God as his children. And that will be forever. But that day, so far, has not been this day. Maybe it will be. But it hasn't been yet. We wait. There's been a delayed fulfillment. We're waiting just like Abram was. So these, these three themes apply to our lives as, as we become believers. They also then, and this is where I want to close, uh, which doesn't mean I'm really that close. It just means that I want to draw your attention back in. They also apply to our lives in this world as believers. So it's not just how do you become a Christian because of the gracious call of God and the costly obedience, what we believe, and we look for that delayed fulfillment of promise, but those themes also just continue to reside over our lives as Christians. And this is where I want to bridge, as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ, I want to bridge our summer series with our return to Genesis. We said, right, who are we as a church? And in that, in all of the different answers that we gave, we see the gracious call of God on our lives. Salvation's not the end of God's grace to us. It's not the end of God's calling to us. It's the beginning of God's calling to us. It's the beginning of what he's going to work in and through us. So who are we as a church to be reminded of God's grace in our lives? Uh, he has made us and called us to be. Do you remember where we started? We said we are saints. We're transformed from sinners by his grace. You are saints, so live as saints. That's the gracious call of God. It has come, and then it's a call. This is who I have made you to be. Now live as who I've made you to be. You are Saints, holy ones, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, back at the beginning of July. So now live as saints. He has graciously called us as his family, adopted sons and daughters, no longer his enemies. God says, by my grace, you are my family. So live as a family, live as my family. He has graciously called us to be the bride of Christ. We are loved, we are longed for by Jesus, we are purchased, and we are cleansed in preparation for that ceremony so that he can offer us to himself. We are eagerly awaiting our eternal union with him. God in his grace has said, you are my bride, so live as my bride. He has graciously called us and equipped us as members of his body. Body parts, he graces us, with gifts to serve him and to serve his people. So he says, By grace, you are equipped and indispensable parts of my body. So the call is, live as parts of my body. He's graciously called us to his throne as prayers. P- not prayers, prayers. Don't forget the hyphen that we put in there. Come to my throne. Come for mercy grace bring your requests before me i'm my ear is bent i'm i'm listening and so that's who we are we we are welcome to call him father and to call on him as father and come before his throne so so we live as those who are privileged to pray and because of all of these abundant graces we are priests offering acceptable sacrifices to him not sacrifices of atonement that was jesus but sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of generosity sacrifices that are our lives by grace you are pleasing and acceptable in my sight so offer your life to me as a living sacrifice and because his grace is not limited to us he has called us to go and make disciples Keith talked about the engage in the family business. It's a grace to us to be privileged to participate, not just in the kingdom, but in the expansion of God's kingdom family. And it is grace for us to extend God's grace to others. It's a privilege to be able to participate in that. You are following me, so live as my follower, calling others to follow me. Did you see the gracious call of God on our lives as Christians? But there's also the costly obedience of faith. Who are we as a church? Well, there are privileges and benefits to each of these callings, but there are also costs and difficulties and trials and sufferings and losses. When we live as saints, we must pursue the holiness of God. Be holy, for I am holy. This means denying ourselves, taking up our cross, Daily to die, saying no to temptation and to sin, saying no to the world's way of thinking and doing things, not just speaking our own wisdom, not just serving in our own strength. And the Bible calls this dying to self. That's a cost. If it was easy, we wouldn't have said dying. Anyone ever, has anyone anywhere ever been like, oh, this is so easy? It's like Death. He even talks about the fact that you don't just die, but you put your sinful desires to death. This self-execution, this self-mortification. We kill that which we want the most so that we can live to the new desires that God is growing in us. There's a cost to that. You will miss out. You will lose relationships of those who are along the world's way of thinking. You will not always be respected and appreciated and honored. When we live as redeemed family, if you weren't here that day, July 16th, I was in Belize, I listened to it when I got back, I need to listen to it again, go back July 16th, listen to that sermon again. When we live as redeemed family and we welcome each other into our lives, we truly open ourselves, not just our homes, but ourselves up to others to give and to receive from, well, from them, will that always go well? It will not. Uh, will we always be treated fairly? We will not. Will our attempts at hospitality always be received as they're offered and received with gratitude? No. when we show hospitality, will it always be shown back to us as well? It will not. Will our attempts to, like family, lovingly correct or encourage or comfort, will they always come across the right way? Will we be gossiped about, maligned, attacked, and defrauded? Almost certainly. Will we be exhausted from spending ourselves for others? Will it interrupt our nap time? It interrupted Jesus' nap time. Is there a greater cost? A faithful, loving bride, what we've been called to be. Is there a cost to that? Doesn't seem like it on the wedding day, right? But a faithful, loving bride turns away from all others. It's visualized in this. a turn from everybody else, all other lovers, to embrace her one husband. And the world around us is filled with other love interests that try to seduce us from love for Christ. And we must say no to all of them. Sometimes that's easy and sometimes that feels hard. But we say no to all other loves and lovers in our faithfulness to Jesus, our one groom. And every part of the body exists not for itself, but for the sake of the whole body. So we speak God's word and we serve with God's strength so that God gets all the glory. And that means that we have to lay aside our brilliant words and we have to not serve in our uh, sufficient strength. And so that means that we don't get that glory also. Here's God's word that I gave you when I was exhausted and I felt like a mess. And you're like, boy, that did, that, that ministered to me. And you're like, that ministered to you? What about these other times when I had all of the answers for you, and I felt really great, and we had like a three-hour meeting where I just talked your ear off, and it it accomplished nothing? Like, what? No, it's God's word, God's strength, God's glory, which means that we're turning. We're just kind of like, man, background for what God is doing. Praying takes time and effort And it's not just like, the oh, I've got to add that to my schedule. That's not even just the effort that I'm talking about. That's not even just the cost of prayer. Sure, there's a time cost, but there's that waiting cost. It's hard to wait. It's hard to bring a genuine need that's important to us to our Father and then just submit to His will, which is perfect and not ours. All right, you said don't try it all on my own, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring that before you, and then we wait 24 hours, and it's like, why hasn't it been answered? I guess I've got to fix it myself. There's a cost to prayer of submission and waiting that happens to us because our all-wise God does what pleases, to him, pleases him according to his own schedule. He doesn't do all that we want exactly when we want it done. That's a costly aspect of the obedience of faith, which waits. And worshiping is costly. It requires us to regularly acknowledge every moment of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year, now, and for eternity, that we are unworthy and insufficient. Because all that we have, we receive from the grace of God, and we are just responding to it. We need God. We need His grace in our lives and for our salvation. And what about making disciples? Is there a costly aspect to that obedience? Keith told us last week that requires us to love people, and not just some people. But this, this family business of making disciples requires us to love the kind of people that we don't love and don't want to love. I think it's true that if, if it's easy to love, that it's probably not love that it's when you don't want to do it that it's actually love. Right? Me just hanging out with one of my friends that we get along with really well and be like, "Oh, look how hosp- hospitable and loving I am." It's like that's not how that works. If I could boil down the Genesis text about Abram, I think it would sound like this. God said, "Go." And by faith Abram said, "Yes, Lord." And he went. Just those two sentences. God said, go, and Abram went. In the same way, if I could boil down how this text relates to us as followers of Christ, it would sound like this. Christ says, love. And by faith, we say, yes, Lord. Love your brothers and sisters. And we say, yes, Lord. He says, love your neighbors. And we say, yes, Lord. He says, love your enemies. And we say, yes, Lord. This is God's gracious call to us as his loved children, and it requires costly faith-filled and faith-fueled obedience. And there's a delayed fulfillment of promise for us too. I mean, how long Right? How many times is that in the Psalms? How long, O oh Lord? We could ask it too. How long do we have to love and serve and forgive and welcome like this? Like how how, how far does that have to go? In, in how many areas of my life does that have to, to stretch? When when do I get a break? When can I stop? Maybe we could put it this way whenever Christ stops loving and serving and welcoming and forgiving you, you can stop loving others. And you see what that goes, right? We are always living out from the grace of God that we have received. It's always grace first. How long, though, will we do these things until we experience or enjoy success? Like the success of living together in harmony as God's family and success in seeing people become disciples of Christ? How long until it works? Until we see the results? Well, to be honest, I have no idea when and how God will act in our midst and, and through our efforts in his name, where people will see that we're a loving family like we are ought to. They'll know you're, you're my disciples because of your love for one another, that you've welcomed as brothers and sisters, and you love Jesus above all. Like, how long until people around us start to recognize that and it starts to be a means of God's grace into their lives? When do we start seeing abundant fruit of disciples starting to come through these things? This is kind of like, is it it going to take a week? Is it going to take a month? Does it take a year of just hard plotting, and then the fruit just automatically starts to pop up? Like, when's it going to work? That's always where my brain goes. How long until we start to see the results of these things? We have no idea. But I think we can and we should expect various lengths of delays in the fulfillment of God's promises to us. Not because he's weak, or he's uncaring, or he's not listening but because he is also at work in us through the waiting. God is working in you while you wait for him to work in you and in others. That's one of the costs, though, the waiting. And, but the very notion of success probably probably wrongheaded, makes it sound like eventually we'll be done. We live like a family for a year, and then we're good. Or we make disciples for five years, and then we're done. As a church the only destination for us is heaven with christ and until then we are journeying the journey never stops the journey of family and bride and saints and prayers and worshipers and disciple makers it just is always who we are the gracious call of god will always be with us and on us as we live here on earth and the costly obedience of faith is a guarantee from christ to us patterned countless times throughout the bible as is the delayed promise of fulfilling. But we do not stop believing. We do not lose hope. A delayed fulfillment of a promise is not a failure. It's just a matter of timing. And for us, we want everything quickly. Instant streaming. Right? Next day delivery, or same day delivery. Keurig coffee in 30 seconds at the push of a button. But with God, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. He is perfectly content to make promises to Abram that wouldn't be fulfilled for 25 or 400 or 4,000 years. And his promises to us are no different. They are gracious, they are costly to follow, and they are often delayed in their fulfillment. And what do we do? We believe and we obey, and we wait. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge, is God. These things are true of you, Father, when we recognize them and when we don't, please give us eyes to see that they are true. And teach us, as much as we will not like the lessons, teach us to wait on you and to wait on you in silence. You are acting and you will act, and your promises will all be fulfilled because you are gracious and you are trustworthy. Thank you for the salvation in Jesus that is true and yet to be revealed. Please work in our midst. Amen.